Welcome back to the MedBullet Step 1 podcast. In this episode, we go over the topic of ethical principles from the stats section on MedBullets.com. Let's start this topic with the concept of core ethical principles. There are four core ethical principles, autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice. Autonomy is respecting patients as individuals. It is honoring patients' preferences in medical care. The patient's preferences take priority when making medical decisions. Therefore, the decider of the decisions is the patient's word, which is more important than the living will, which is more important than the next of kin. As part of honoring patients' preferences in medical care, you should always communicate with non-English speaking patients through a professional translator. Note that respecting confidentiality is also a very important part of autonomy. The next subtopic is beneficence. This is acting in the patient's best interest. It is important to balance autonomy and beneficence, but autonomy trumps beneficence. Next up is non-maleficence, and this means, quote, do not harm. For example, do not help patients commit suicide. And lastly, justice is divided into two types, distributive justice and formal justice. Distributive justice governs allocation of limited resources, and formal justice means that equals must be treated equally. Let's now review other ethical principles. The first is breaking bad news. In this process, you have to first set up the interview, then assess the patient's perception, obtain the patient's invitation through a permission, then give the patient the necessary knowledge, then address the patient's emotions with empathetic responses. Note that in cases of bereavement, Being empathetic with patient families and offering to answer questions is very helpful. And in pediatric cases, both parents and patients have a right to know the diagnosis and treatment. Group conversations can facilitate the, quote, right to know conflicts while maintaining legal and ethical principles. The next set of principles are the end-of-life care principles, which include evaluating patients for hospice care if they have a life-limiting diagnosis, prognosis of less than six months, giving hospice patients antibiotics and pain medications because treatments that enhance quality of life should be administered in hospice care, and only treatments that sacrifice current well-being for future longevity should be avoided. And the last end-of-life care principle is informing the patient about their diagnoses, even against family wishes. The next principle is the fact that open-ended questions are the best way to elicit a patient history. Closed-ended questions are useful for follow-up or clarification. Note that motivational interviewing involves supporting patients to formulate their own goals. The next principle is the fact that many patient encounters necessitate a combination of the above ethical principles that we just discussed, but a few general principles include encouraging open communication between patients and other treating physicians, attempting to preserve the patient's relationship with other healthcare providers, No matter what, ensuring that the patient is receiving the best available care is always the primary priority. If a mistake is discovered, the physician should disclose that to the patient and or the family. All safety concerns should be taken seriously, even seemingly trivial ones from junior team members. Let's now talk about confidentiality. All patients, regardless of age, should have the option of speaking to their physician alone. Minors, those that are less than 18 years of age, generally require their parents to consent to receive treatment with the following exceptions in most states. 1. Care for sexual health, for example, pregnancy, contraception, and sexually transmitted infection treatment. 
mental health, and substance abuse, along with emancipated minors and emergencies. Note that parents should be asked to leave the room so that teenage patients can discuss their concerns. In terms of conflicts of interest, physicians should report conflicts of interest. Physicians can accept honoraria and be compensated for travel expenses, but cannot have assistance with slide presentations from pharmaceutical companies. The next principle is capacity. Physicians can determine capacity, which is the ability for the patient to understand their treatment, as well as the risks, benefits, and alternatives. Competence is a legal designation and cannot be determined by a physician. The next principle is adherence. Extended contact with physicians through follow-up appointments increases adherence with lifestyle changes. Barriers to medication compliance should be explored in a non-judgmental, open-ended manner. Concerning reports of medication abuse should be discussed directly with the patient. Creating an organized, written linear care plan is key to increasing medication compliance in patients. Adopting a non-judgmental, collaborative mindset is key for treating substance abuse disorder. Let's now talk about patients with a history of sexual abuse. Physicians should first listen empathetically to the patient's feelings and concerns. Avoid judgmental statements, over-pathologizing, or prematurely jumping to treatment. And the last principle is medication compliance in children. This is a multifaceted issue with factors including age of the patient, knowledge about the disease, peer pressure, rebellion or independence, socioeconomic status, cultural issues and beliefs, and family structure. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. First question. An 82-year-old man with metastatic squamous cell carcinoma of the lung tells his hospice nurse that he needs opioid pain medications for severe suprapubic pain associated with dysuria and increased urinary frequency as well as back pain. His past medical history is significant for chronic bronchitis as well as squamous cell lung cancer and his wife has durable power of attorney for making his health care decisions. At baseline, he requires between 1 to 3 liters of oxygen by nasal cannula, and his oxygen saturation is currently 87% on 5 liters of oxygen. He is found to have cloudy urine that is positive for leukocytes, nitrates, and bacteria. Which of the following is the most appropriate course of action to take? 1. Call the patient's wife so she can make the decision. 2. Give antibiotics but not opioid analgesics. 3. Give both antibiotics and opioid analgesics. 4. Give neither antibiotics nor opioid analgesics. Or 5. Give opioid analgesics but not antibiotics. And the correct answer choice is answer choice 3. Give both antibiotics and opioid analgesics. This hospice patient who presents with pain as well as a urinary tract infection should be given both antibiotics and opioid analgesics because both would improve his quality of life. Remember, hospice care is an option for end-of-life patients who agree to stop pursuing aggressive therapies in favor of maximizing quality of life. Patients who engage in hospice care should still receive all therapies that would minimize suffering or promote quality of life including pain medications. Furthermore, patients should also receive antibiotics to treat infection because this is a therapy with very little morbidity that can dramatically improve the patient's quality of life. 
Specifically, patients in hospice do not abandon all therapies that promote length of life. Rather, they abandon the therapies that seek to prolong life at the expense of current suffering. Let's now review the incorrect answer choices. Answer choice 1, call the patient's wife so she can make the decision, is incorrect because the patient is currently still coherent and able to make his own decisions. Durable power of attorney takes effect when a patient is unable to express his or her own wishes. Answer choice 2, give antibiotics but not opioid analgesics, is incorrect because pain medications should be given to hospice patients to relieve suffering even if they may have a side effect of shortening life. Answer choice 4, give neither antibiotics nor opioid analgesics, is incorrect because hospice patients should be given therapies to promote their quality of life. The only therapies that are abandoned during hospice are those that sacrifice the current quality of life for potential increased length of life. And finally, answer choice 5, give opioid analgesics but not antibiotics is incorrect because antibiotics have low morbidity and potentially dramatically improve the quality of life. In summary, therapies that increase the quality of life such as pain medications and antibiotics should be given to patients in hospice care. Next question. An 18-year-old girl presents to the clinic for her first well-woman visit. She has no complaints currently. Menarche was at age 13 and her last menses was two weeks ago. Her temperature is 99.5 degrees Fahrenheit or 37.5 degrees Celsius. Blood pressure is 110 over 60 millimeters of mercury. Pulse is 84 per minute and respirations are 15 per minute. Her physical exam, including pelvic exam, is normal. She currently takes no medications and has no allergies. She denies illicit drug use and acknowledges that she is sexually active. Which of the following is the most appropriate way to begin obtaining a sexual history? 1. Quote, are you currently in a relationship with anyone? 2. Quote, are you sexually active with men, women, or both? 3. Quote, do you use protection when you have sex? 4. Quote, how many men or women have you had sex with? Or five, quote, you should be honest with me about your sexual history or else I'm not going to be able to help you. And the correct answer choice is answer choice two. Quote, are you sexually active with men, women, or both? The most appropriate question to ascertain a sexual history is, quote, are you sexually active with men, women, or both? Remember, questions regarding sexual history should be asked in an open, non-judgmental manner which does not assume the sexual orientation of the patient. A thorough sexual history should be obtained and can help dictate the need for any diagnostic testing. Sexual history should include questions about the gender of the sexual contacts, including men, women, or both, number of sexual contacts within the past month and past six months, use of barrier protection, whether or not they are consistent or inconsistent, and sites of sexual contact, including oral, genital, and rectal. Let's now review the incorrect answer choices. Answer choice 1, asking, are you currently in a relationship with anyone, assumes that a relationship is a prerequisite for sexual activity and may discourage the patient from discussing her sexual behavior outside of the context of relationships. Answer choice 3, asking, do you use protection when you have sex, should be asked after the gender of sexual contacts and nature of sexual contacts has been clarified. It should not be the first question asked in obtaining a sexual history. Answer choice 4, 
asking how many men or women have you had sex with has a judgmental tone and should not be used to obtain a sexual history, as it may discourage the patient from being forthcoming about the number of partners. And finally, answer choice five, stating, quote, you should be honest with me about your sexual history or else I'm not going to be able to help you, is a poor way to establish a trusting environment with the patient. While honesty from the patient is critical during a sexual history, trust and rapport building, not threats, is a better way to induce patient honesty. In summary, obtaining a sexual history should be non-judgmental and should not assume the patient's sexual orientation, number of partners, or sites of sexual contact. And that's all for this review about ethical principles. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the MedBullets Step 1 podcast, a daily audio review session by MedBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for medical student education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on MedBullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the MedBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from these MedBullets Step 1 podcasts so far, please consider leaving us a 5-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you are not already, be sure to follow MedBullets on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow, right here on the MedBullets Step 1 podcast.